Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're going to be looking at King Josiah, which follows on from the last episode, which was focused on King Hezekiah. But there's a period of time that's elapsed in between, Mike. Yeah, there is. So the king we're looking at today, King Josiah, his father was Ammon, and his father was Manasseh, and his father was Hezekiah. So Hezekiah was his great-grandfather. Now, interesting, Hezekiah, as we saw in a previous episode, very godly man. Josiah, we're going to see, equally godly man. But Manasseh and Ammon, terrible guys, really godless. Manasseh, infamous in Judah's history because he was the king who even sacrificed his own children to the gods Molech. So that's fascinating that you get such a godly guy followed by two generations that are the opposite followed by Josiah, the third generation, who comes back to that godly way again. The real extremes, actually, from what you just said, the, the, the horrors of, of Hezekiah's son, um, it, it couldn't be more extreme. It couldn't. And Hezekiah, I mean, reigned, um, sorry, Manasseh reigned for a pretty long time, 55 years. Now, in those days, that was incredibly long. So 55 years of this godlessness being established in the land, followed by the two years of Ammon's reign. Uh, He was assassinated, didn't live that long. So between Hezekiah and Josiah, we've got 57 years of increasing godlessness, which sets the background for what it is that Josiah is going to have to face. So Josiah suddenly becomes king, bearing in mind you just said his father was assassinated. Yes, and therefore he becomes king much earlier than he would ever have anticipated. 2 Kings 22 tells us that he was just eight years old when he came to the throne. Eight years old. I mean, listeners, think of of people you know around that age with all the things that kids have at that age and all the mischief they can get into and everything else. And yet, even from a young age, it seems that uh, Josiah was a godly guy and increasingly set his heart on God. In fact, 2 Kings 22 opens up with a whole number uh, of steps in his history of, of how that happened. So at the age of 16, it says he began to seek the God of his ancestor, David, getting back there to heart religion again, which was characteristic of David, of course. By the age of 20, we're told he was purging the land of idolatry and destroying the shrines to Baal. And it's when he's 26 that we get the biggest renewal of his life for, for which he's known. So it's interesting. He, he, there's clearly growth in his spiritual growth here. And from that young age, over the coming years, somehow this young king set his heart on God in increasing measure. Perhaps a challenge to us, you know, godliness does not drop out of heaven. Over the years, I've had people say to me when I've visited other nations, oh, pastor, would you please pray for me that I could preach the word of God like you? And my answer is yes, it will only take 40 years because there are things we have to give ourselves to and growing godliness is one of them. If we give ourselves to seeking God and praying and asking for his will and reading his word, that's the sort of stuff that helps us to grow. 
And presumably that's the sort of stuff that helped Josiah to grow against, again, this incredible dark background that he'd come out of. And he was just a child, eight years old. I'm, I'm still trying to sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, get get to understand that. He was responsible as king at eight years of age yeah. for this kingdom. Yeah, He would no doubt have had advisors because that's what happened in those days. But the long and short of it was he was the anointed descendant of David and he was king. And I think any of us that have ever worked with young children will probably testify to how children can have incredible spiritual insights. Their faith, you know, yes, it is simple, but sometimes it is so simple that they see amazing things. I've seen young children of seven and eight pray simply for people who've been sick and seen them healed when I've been praying for ages for them and nothing has happened. There's, they take things at face value. They take God at his face value. And I think that's what Josiah had been doing. And of course, his father was assassinated. So he is living with that memory, living with that experience, seeing that badness, if you like. Yeah. And that must have sown some seeds in his, in his little life. Absolutely. I mean, what that did, who knows? But I think what we can say is, as this story starts, this guy had no advantages going for him. Humanly, everything was against him. Two godless kings before, father assassinated. It's interesting that chapter 22 of Two Kings actually mentions his mom. His mother's name was Jedida, uh, the daughter of Adaya. And even the fact of mentioning her might just suggest that perhaps that's where the godliness came from. Maybe it was his mum who put into this young guy. So for any mums out there, you know, maybe who are married to people who aren't Christians, come on, mums, you can put amazing things into your kid that could have fruits down the road. And you said it was when he was 16, so what, some eight years later, that he began to seek the God of his ancestor David. In our terms, because that's a teenager, but still still young. But what is that telling us about the direction he was he was setting for himself? Well, it's interesting that they put there, he began not just to seek God, but the God of his ancestor, David. Now, what was David known for? David was known, wasn't he, for heart relationship with God. He, he was known for passionate worship. All those Psalms that he wrote, that dancing when they brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And I think the author is wanting to underline here that this was indeed a, a true descendant of David. This was someone who carried David's heart and he's pursuing God in that way with a genuine heart relationship. Externals, temple worship, yes, they will become important. But where it started and where it still starts for us today is not with externals, but in our heart, God come in our heart and do something there. And this was clearly a young guy and a young teenager at this stage who was doing that and pursuing that himself. And then not many years later, purging the land of idolatry at the age of 20. Again, I'm trying to imagine what that actually entailed, bearing him up what had gone before, what his, what his um, father and grandfather had been up to. Yes, what it would have involved and will involve a little later in the story is the removing of so many of those symbols of Baal worship and paganism, those high places that weren't places of sacrifice or worship to the living God, uh, idols, Baals, Asherahs. Asherah was Baal's sort of female equivalent. 
And he just sets his heart to start removing these elements of idolatry that had been introduced by his father and his grandfather. Won't get rid of all of them yet because they'll become an even bigger purge, but he's made a beginning. And do you know what? Sometimes we just have to make a beginning. Maybe we can't do everything, but he makes a beginning as he sets his heart on God that he is going to be a king who follows the living God and who has a people who follow the living God. And even at 20, I would have thought he would have had plenty of um, individuals and groups of voices trying to stop him from from this uh, this campaign, if you like. I imagine there were lots of people who told him to be reasonable, to be sensible, to to not go overboard, to, come on, can we not make a little bit of space for people who think differently? A bit like in our culture today, you know, do you have to be so exclusive? Do you really have to say that Jesus is the only way? Come on, we live in a multicultural society. It's the equivalent for him when no doubt many voices over two generations had given themselves to all these other things that he suddenly wanted to get rid of. So I'm sure there would have been many voices, whether it was people of his own age, advisors, just the folk of the nation who were saying, come on, can we not dial this down a little bit? Can we not be a bit more flexible? I wonder how many listeners have been called to be a little bit more flexible, a little bit more tolerant. And yes, we want to be tolerant with hearts of love and passion and compassion for people. But real tolerance knows what it stands for and not just what it stands against. We sing a song in church which has the line, God will have no rivals. Is that what this is about? It is. And that's what he was resolved on doing. And that's what will take an even bigger turn at a key stage in his life that we read about in in 2 Kings 23. He's now 26 years old. So he's still he's still a young guy, isn't he? Mm. You know, for many of us in our churches today, we think a 26-year-old, you know, would be too young to take up leadership, maybe. But here at the age of 26, the the biggest transformation takes place. And uh, it all came about by accident. The repairers, the builders, they're chipping away at the walls and as they're chiseling away and things, one of them suddenly comes across a book and sort of looks at it and scroll probably rather than a book, if truth be told, blows the dust off it and thinks, oh, I wonder what this is. And he goes to the high priest called Shaphan and uh, Hilkiah, sorry. And then Hilkiah goes to Shaphan, the king's secretary, and says, we found this book. And as they open it, what they discover is, is what they call the book of the law. So Hilkiah, the high priest, goes to Shaphan and says, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Now, what was that referring to? It's pretty clear to scholars from the reforms that follow that what they found was the book of Deuteronomy. Because so many of the commands in Deuteronomy are what Josiah goes on to carry out. And they'd lost that sort of book, that manual. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine your church and you had lost one of the books of the Bible. Now, you know, maybe some of them we might lose and not notice some of those obscure prophets that we hardly get round to preaching from. But imagine, I don't know, that you'd lost Matthew's gospel and no one had noticed <laughs> for two generations. <laughs> well, that's what happens here. And when the king discovers this. Again, he says he just tears his robes and he realises what has happened. 
And he realizes that they've been neglecting the word of God, a key part of the word of God for so long. Deuteronomy was so full of both commands, but promises with those commands. And so having discovered quotes by accident, (laughs) this missing part of God's word, he gets to reading it, studying and saying, guys, we have got to get this back in place. And it's out of that that all the further renewals, not just of the temple, but the getting rid of much of the idolatry and the renewing of the covenant and the Passover will come. In my mind's eye, I'm imagining uh, one of our English cathedrals and there's some refurbishment going on. Yes, exactly. And uh, the workers come across this, this dusty book. And in this case, it turns out to be an absolutely central book that should never have been lost. Absolutely. I think that's a really good illustration because perhaps some of us have been in cathedrals and seen old manuscripts and it was probably like that, but yeah, covered in dust and you know, behind some wall somewhere. Who on earth had put it there? How had it ended up there? How can you lose such a crucial part of God's word? And yet that's what had happened. Again, a reflection of what it had been like in Manasseh and Ammon's time how little regard they had had for the true living God and his word. But when Josiah gets this and when it's read to him, man, his life and the life of the nation changes. It's the power of it being read to him that strikes me as significant. Yes, and he realises as soon as he hears it, he realises how far they've fallen short of what God wanted for them. So 2 Kings 23 is full of things that he goes on to do. I mean, there's a whole list here. He he removes from the temple all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He he removed from the temple (laughs) all these things made for other gods in the temple. It says he did away with the pagan priests and the altars that they used to burn incense from. He got rid of the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord, took it to the Kidron Valley and burnt it there. He broke down the shrines at the gates. It says he desecrated Topheth. Topheth was a place where they offered children a sacrifice, and he just completely desecrates it, removes it, pulls down the altars that the kings of Judah had erected in the temple and in the city. So one by one, he works his way through. And of course, there is so much in Deuteronomy about having no other gods. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema talks about, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. A word that Jesus picks up and repeats. With all of it, none of your heart left for Baal and Asherah and all these other things. And for two generations, people have found just a little corner of their heart for something other than God. But you know, when we leave a little corner of our hearts for something other than God, that little corner just has a way of growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it takes over. And that's what had happened here. And Josiah says, let's get rid of all this stuff. And so he completely rids Jerusalem and the surrounding country of anything to do with the worship of any God other than Yahweh, the living God. 
So that was a real clean sweep. How do the people react? Well, we're not told everything again. And I think we can probably imagine some people being a bit uppity (laughs) about this, particularly if you had your favourite idol or something or other. But what Josiah does is he leads by example. It's like, it's not just rules. He's calling people up by setting a heart example himself. And so one of the things that he's eager to do is to celebrate the Passover. Now, it's not quite clear whether they'd stop celebrating the Passover or whether it had become half-hearted. Because the text says not since the days of the judges who led Israel had there been such a celebration of the Passover. Passover, remember, was crucial to Israel's identity. Still is to this day for Jews. That meal when they share bread and lamb and wine and remember that God is a redeeming God who brought them out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. Probably scholars describe it as like the founding event in the Old Testament that gave Israel its identity and that led them to Sinai where God took them as his people. And yet this foundational event in their faith had been neglected. How on earth had that happened? Again, a reflection of what had happened in Manasseh and Ammon's reign. Is that a little bit like in church today, forgetting Holy Communion or Mass? I think it's possibly worse. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. Different Christian traditions have different ways of celebrating Communion, the Lord's Supper Mass. Some do it every week, some once a month. There are some Christian traditions that only do it once a year because we're not exactly told how often. Jesus just said, do this as often as you drink it in memory of me. Whereas Passover was something that was absolutely commanded on an annual basis at a fixed time at the new moon to celebrate and remember and not just remember, but relive what God had done. Still to this day, when Jews gather for the Passover meal, the youngest male child present will say to his father, Father, why is this night so different to other nights? And the father of the family will say, Ah, that's because, and he tells the story of the Passover, not just to retell it, but they relive it. And so this was incredibly fundamental. Yes, I know communion, Lord's Supper, is fundamental to many Christians, but this was even more fundamental. This this was in the roots of your faith, and it had been something that had been neglected. But yeah, imagine imagine if your pastor, your priest said, oh, by the way, um, we're not going to do Holy Communion anymore. We just don't think it's very important. You would have hoped that people would have said, hang on a minute. But it looks like the people went along with it and said, oh, yeah, but Josiah knows we have got to get this back. This is fundamental. This is not just about a religious ceremony. This is about us reclaiming and proclaiming that we are the people of God and God has a purpose for us. There's an identity in there. So he reinstitutes Passover and you talked about a 
a renewal, a, a reformation maybe is an appropriate word. Absolutely. There's an incredible reformation. So remember, he's been doing some already. He's been working at it. But along with this Passover, we read in 2 Kings 23, where it says that Josiah got rid of the mediums and the spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. Mediums and spiritists, completely forbidden in the word of God. Bible's really clear that we shouldn't make any attempt to try and contact the dead. Why? Because it's a dangerous realm. It's a deceptive realm. And it's a realm the devil loves just to draw us in. The household gods, very common in the ancient world, particularly in this period, for every house to have its own household gods. So yes, you'd have your national gods, you'd have your tribal gods, but each house had its own little household god that it worshipped and who looked after you and your family. Again, completely forbidden by the word of God. But it looks like people had slowly taken back in their household gods again, maybe in a little cupboard that they could close away. And you can imagine here Josiah saying to his servants and to his soldiers, go through the whole land, go through every house, pull down every idol, get rid of every medium and spiritist, get rid of every household god and every other detestable thing. He is absolutely committed to purifying the way of the people of God and for them to know, as we see in Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it's him you're to give everything to, not spreading it around amongst all these other gods just to hedge your bets, as it were. I mean, obviously, all that would have taken some time, but he's still only in his 20s, isn't he? He is. I mean, at this stage, he was 26 when he started that. Don't know exactly how long that took, but over the, the coming months, clearly. And it's a reflection of his determination, even at this young age to be a man who pursues God and who will lead a people who will pursue God. So how long was he in charge? How long was he king? He was king from 640 BC to 609 BC. So 31 years, reasonably long again for those days. But um, he ends up in a rather sad predicament. He ends up dying in battle. Now, we're not told everything that happens. There's some sort of silent years here. So that Passover I talked about, scholars think, happened around 622 BC, taking into account his age. And between that and his death in 609 BC, we don't know an awful lot, but we do know what was happening elsewhere. And in 612 BC, Assyria fell to Babylon. We now have a new superpower on the world stage. And it looks as if when Assyria fell, this stirred some political ambitions in Josiah to start stretching his wings a little bit. Now, do you remember I've said before there were two great empires, Egypt down to the southwest, Babylon to the northeast. The last thing that Egypt wants is an even stronger power than Assyria. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh Necho, led his Egyptian army up 
along the coastal road. And his intention was to go and fight Babylon and crush them before they were able to get any stronger. And for some reason, King Josiah decided he would go out and try and stop him. You know, this was a a little sprat Mm. trying to swim with the big fish, Mm. really. But he went out to try and resist Pharaoh. Pharaoh was on his way to what would become the Battle of Carchemish, a, a very famous battle when Egypt ended up being defeated. And Pharaoh Necho actually said to him, I'm only going up because your God has told me to. Now, that may just have been political language, of course, in those days. But Josiah goes out, perhaps a little bit overfull of himself, perhaps riding on the crest of a wave because of everything that has happened. And he went out to try and stop Pharaoh Necho and his army on the plain of Megiddo. Plain of Megiddo, Christians often know from the book of Revelation, mm. that pictorial location of the Battle of Armageddon. Enormous plain. Huge plain, isn't it? That stretches out, surrounded by hills. And in fact, it's probably one of the few places in the whole of Israel that's big enough for enemies to face up to one another. Now, despite God's warning not to go, um, he went into battle. He felt that he could stop Pharaoh, again, perhaps a bit full of himself, a little bit proud here. He does this strange thing. He he goes into battle in disguise (laughs) because, of course, in those days, people used to look for the king or the leader, thinking that if you could get him, that was the battle over. So he goes into battle in disguise, thinking that will keep him, he'll be safe. But he's struck by a stray arrow, a bit like King Harold getting the arrow in the eye. Mm. And he's badly wounded. He's taken back in his chariot and he dies back in Jerusalem. And you can't help but think, ah, man, what a dumb thing to do. After all you've done, after all the godliness that's followed your life, after all you've seen God do through you and for you, a little bit of pride takes over at the end and just takes the shine off things. Mm, Just that little slip, um, as it were, uh, made all the difference because he therefore lost his life at a relatively young age. Yes, this was so sad, really, because he was so full of potential. And, you know, um, God doesn't always rescue us from our stupidity and our silly mistakes. And I think this really was a mistake. In fact, God told him it was a mistake and still he went. And I, I think, yeah, he was just riding the crest of the wave. So full of what? Maybe not full of himself, but perhaps full of what God had been doing. And when we were a, get a bit gung-ho about God and what he's done, it's very easy for us to think it's us and, and we did it. And maybe there was a little bit of that. So here's this godly guy who's done so much, seen so much, dying as a result of a random arrow in battle because just couldn't keep that little bit of pride in place at the end of his life, and it proved to be his undoing. So he became king at the age of eight, and a lot happened in a very short time, by the sound of it, in Josiah's life. Yes. But it ended how it ended. As you look back on his relatively short life, what are the highlights? 
For me, the highlight is the importance of the Word of God staying central to your life. When Josiah discovered Deuteronomy, it changed his life. Over all my years as a Christian, having the Word of God at the centre of my life has been what has taken me through again and again. It's challenges, it's encouragements, it's rebukes, it's hopes. Having the Word of God central is gives us something to build on. But I think what it also tells us this story is a warning not to get presumptuous, not to take God for granted and not to take his glories and make them ours and to become so confident in who we are and what we've become and what our ministry is that we suddenly get caught unawares and brought down by a random arrow. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.